Well, it's good to be back here this Sunday. Uh, my family was gone last week. Uh, we were on vacation in South Carolina, and uh, we missed being here um, with, with everyone. Um, I understand it was uh, a great service, and Dr. Miller uh, was clear and a blessing and uh, just opened up God's Word. I have started to listen to the sermon and have not yet, and looking forward to that. Uh, so I really do appreciate him being here and, uh, and opening up the scriptures from Matthew 18 um, with, with us. Well, you can open your Bibles this morning to Exodus 20. That's where we're going to be. And I want to start with a question. Maybe you've never thought about this. Why did God give Israel, and I say specifically Israel on purpose, why did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? And I think we often get confused when we read the Ten Commandments or when we hear about them. When it comes to these Ten Commandments, in our culture, it seems like the most often way that we hear about them is on some monument in some public space that has been, is under attack or has been used to promote, uh, you know, the basis for American laws and society, and so there's a culture war over them, and the Ten Commandments happen to be at the center of that culture war. But I want to take you back to my question, and I want to ask again, why did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? And to properly understand this text of Scripture, to properly make application to our lives today, we have to know, first of all, why God gave them to Israel here in Exodus 20. So let me remind you, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Exodus, so let me remind you of how we got here and how we came to Exodus 20 in this book and in this story. We're going to study this list of 10 over the next few weeks, um, and uh, I was trying to make it two, and it looks like it's going to be three, so, but they're pretty important, so I'm all right with it. The book of Exodus, as we've been studying over the last several months, has told the story of God's redemption and rescue of his people, Israel, from Egypt, and he did that in fulfillment of his promises, specifically his promises to Abraham and to the patriarchs. He promised them that he would make a great nation of Abraham's descendants, that he would bring them into a land that he would give to them, and that they would be, he would bless them and they would be a blessing to the nations. And so this book is telling part of that story. And a major piece of that story is how God rescues them from slavery of 400 plus years in Egypt. And what happens, as we've seen, is that God shows up in a big way and he puts his character, his attributes on display. And the way he does that is by winning a great victory over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt. And he humiliates them and he rescues Israel through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, a bloody substitute on their behalf. And so God frees them from slavery but freedom is not the end goal. The freedom is for a purpose. And so he brings them out of slavery in order to bring them to himself, to build a relationship with them. And he's going to make them into a nation, an official chartered nation here that is in relationship with him. 
And this nation has a purpose. There's a reason that God does all of this, and that purpose is found in Exodus 19. You can flip back a page or two there to Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. This is where God defines his purpose for the nation of Israel and why he brought them out of slavery. Verse 4 says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so their purpose is to be representatives of God, a kingdom of priests. They are to mediate God's goodness and his character to the nations. They're to show the nations what living in relationship with God as a holy people looks like. They're to draw the nations in to God's presence by the way that they live. Now, this charter in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, this is part of a larger passage of Scripture called the Book of the Covenant. This is sort of like the preamble to it, defining what the purpose is going to be. But the whole book of the covenant is Exodus 19 through 24. And it's a distinct passage that is set apart to explain this covenant relationship. This covenant is going to define for Israel what life should look like in relationship with God. And it's going to define this relationship so that they can represent him well. And so we saw just a second ago in verse 5 of chapter 19 that God told them that their role in this is to obey his voice and keep his covenant in order for them to be a holy nation. There are certain ethical requirements that he has for them. What exactly are they supposed to obey? Well, he doesn't spell that out in Exodus 19. But he begins to spell that out for them in Exodus 20. And this list of commandments and of things that they're supposed to obey goes from chapter 20 through chapter 23. Now, you need to understand that these covenant stipulations, these requirements for Israel come in two parts. And this has to be clear to you. The first part is what we're going to study over the next couple weeks. This is in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. This, these words or commandments provide the foundational requirements for Israel. These are very broad. They're very general for them. And these are sort of the main things and stipulations that they are supposed to abide by. In chapter 20, God speaks to Israel from the mountaintop. It's his words to them and not through Moses here. He speaks to them and gives them these guidelines that they're supposed to obey. Then in chapters 21 to 23, which we'll take all in one one message, one study on a Sunday morning, chapters 21 to 23 give us case law, right? It's like the working out of these 10 commandments. So you've got the general guidelines in chapter 20, and then he goes and says, okay, this is what this would look like in your life regarding your ox or your donkey or your servant. And he gives them specifics of how to apply these 
things. Now here's what I want to be clear about when you get to chapter 20 and these foundational guidelines. The commands, and we'll talk about that word commands in just a minute here, the commands you're going to find in chapter 20 are not like some arbitrary legal code. God did not just come up with these things on the spur of the moment. These are not like legal codes you might find in your city regarding what sort of fence you can put up or where you can place your shed. And I say this because we just moved and I'm discovering there are different (laughs) guidelines in different cities here. And you have to go to the office and get permission to do certain things. But these commands are not like that. They're not an arbitrary legal code. Not that any are arbitrary. These commands are given to Israel specifically to do them good. And I want you to hear that. And I want that to become how you understand the law that is given to Israel. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 33. Look what God says. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now this is given, this command here, or these words are given to Israel right after Moses recounts the Ten Commandments. And so when he talks about all the things that God has commanded you, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. They're given for the purpose of doing good to Israel. They are for their benefit. And so I would summarize God's purpose for Israel in the Ten Commandments like this. These commands are meant to bless Israel. They're meant to bless Israel as they obey them so that they can represent God and bless the nations. Meant to bless Israel as they obey them so that they can represent God as a holy nation and then they can draw the nations in and bring blessing to the nations. We're going to work that out over the next couple of weeks and here's how we're going to do this. Three ways that God's law gives life. And this is in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Three ways that God's law gives life. Now, I just want to make sure I'm clear here. I've put it like this, that God's law gives life for a particular reason. What I'm not saying here is that you earn eternal life through keeping the Ten Commandments. And that's not how Israel understood these commands either. And that's not how we should think of an ethical or moral life. We don't earn God's favor. We don't earn his approval by keeping these commands and living a good life. You're going to see in chapter 20 in the very first couple of verses that God's gracious salvation and deliverance comes before the giving of the law. I mean, that's the whole structure of the book of Exodus. What happens first in Exodus? God delivers his people. Then he shows them how to live, and he shows them how to live in order to do them good and to bless them so that then they can bless others. Listen to Deuteronomy 30. It's a little bit of an extended passage here, but I'll read it to you. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. The life that comes through God's commands is a life well lived. It is a life of flourishing in the right sense of the word, and it is a life of satisfaction as we live how God designed us to live. And it's a life that God designed to be lived in fellowship with him and enjoying the beauty and the glory of his creation in all of the gifts that he has given. And so that's what I mean when I say God's law gives life. It was intended to give life to Israel as they saw it as something that was good and for their benefit and as they graciously and lovingly obeyed that law. And so three ways that God's law gives life. Here's the first one of those. God's law gives life to us, and I'm going to use the word us, even though we're going to, throughout this, make a transition from Israel to us in the New Testament church, and there is a bit of a jump that we need to make there. We'll do that as we go along, but I'm going to use the word us here as this applies to us. The law of God, his commands to us, reveal his character to us. Now, I know in your Bible it says the Ten Commandments. And I have said the Ten Commandments this morning because that's how we all think of these as commandments. But that's not actually what they're called in Exodus 20. If you look in the text at verse 1, what does it say? And God spoke all these words. It's not the word for commandment. It's the word for word. And the author uses this word intentionally here. Now, there's no doubt. These words are giving people instructions and guidelines and commands. And so it makes sense that we would call them the Ten Commandments. They are telling people what to do and not to do. But by calling them words here, it actually expands how we should understand what God is communicating here. Again, this is not just a list of simple legal instructions and codes. That's not what this is. This broadens their purpose out, and Moses and the Israelites would have understood this. This word that is translated word here is meant to reveal God's character to us. It is a word of revelation. And so these ten commandments, these ten words, are words that communicate God's character to us. So what we're saying is, we, Israel, will know what God is like through hearing these words from God and in obeying them. You can't separate 
the character of the lawgiver from the giving of the law. These are not arbitrary. He expresses what he's like and who he is in the giving of these commandments, in the giving of this law. And he does that, and these are not arbitrary, because of the relational, covenantal connection that Israel now has with God. Look at verse 2. God spoke all these words, saying, and here's how he begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has made it quite clear throughout Exodus that one of his purposes in all of this is to reveal his character to Israel. And that's what he says again. He defines who he is. I am the Lord. His name, his character, his attributes, who he is, is front and center in this list. He revealed himself to Moses. He gave his name. Moses has communicated that to Israel. And now, through this covenant, once again, he is further defining who he is. And so we learn much about God through understanding these commandments, through understanding these words. Now, verse 2 that I just read functions as sort of an official statement in this covenant. It's like a prologue, and it designates the two parties that are going to be partakers in this covenant. And it also describes the circumstances that brought about this arrangement. Obviously, you can see here that the two parties are Yahweh God and Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you. It's God and it is Israel. Those are the two parties of this covenant. And the the situation, the circumstances that brought this or precipitated this arrangement is God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And so what this does, when God starts this way, when God begins by describing the circumstances that brought this out and those circumstances being his deliverance of Israel, it puts the whole thing on a relational covenantal footing. It's all based on his gracious desiring to pull Israel into a relationship with him. I would say this, Israel here is entering into a family relationship. This is like a marriage covenant. And you'll see throughout the Old Testament, God treat this like a marriage covenant. Over and over again. And by God's grace, he has delivered Israel and brought them into this marriage relationship with him. And so that reframes the way that we view these Ten Commandments and the way Israel should have viewed these ten words or commandments. This statement in verse 2 sets the foundation for everything that follows. You cannot overstate how important it is that God begins this way. God has graciously delivered Israel, and therefore their hearts should have been formed to lovingly live by these principles, to see these principles as a gift to them, to help them know how to relate to this God who is so kind and so good. They should have been able to see quite clearly that God did not give them these commands in order to frustrate them, and to make life more difficult. These guidelines are lovingly put in place to protect their relationship with him. 
to guard it and to keep it. And to guard it and to keep it because this was their ultimate good. This was the best thing that they could ever have, to live in a covenant relationship with God. Look at Psalm 81. The same language is used here as is used in Exodus 20 in verse 2. God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And this is God's desire for Israel to do them good, to bless them, to benefit them. So let's talk a little bit about how this applies to us this morning. Let's make this jump from verses 1 and 2 to you and to me and us sitting here this morning thousands of years later and what this means for us in our relationship with God. Israel was supposed to learn two major things from this, from this covenant. And I think you and I can learn these same two things in our relationship with God through the new covenant. The first thing that they were supposed to learn in the way that God stated this and began this is that God is a gracious, merciful, delivering God. And second, after delivering them, he seeks to do them good through his relationship with them. That's the foundation for all of this. To say it another way, God is a God who delights to save. This is the core of his character. He delights to save, and he has the power to save. And then when he saves by his own power and his own grace, he saves in order to do good and to bless, and to bring to himself. Now, as I think about that, I think, imagine in my life how things would change if I really accepted and believed that picture of God. He's not stingy. He's not grumpy. He's not trying to frustrate me in my life. Think about how fundamental to God's character merciful deliverance is. All over the scriptures, this is what he does. This is how he acts. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is kind. He is good. And it's so normal. I mean, it's normal for him to act this way that he sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. There's a story in the New Testament that I have preached on when we went through the Gospel of Mark here, and I think every time I read it, there's there's a line in it that blows me away regarding God's character and his desire to seek that which is lost and be merciful and go to extreme ends in order to save. And it's a story in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is giving this story in the presence of the religious leaders. I think think you'll remember this. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. 
Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. And every time I read this, I go, what kind of a God loves his creation so much and is such a merciful, delivering God that he looks at the way his prophets have been treated and the sinfulness of human beings, and he says, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send him. Maybe they will listen to him. And he sends him for the mission and for the purpose of dying for those sinful people. It's the type of God who we could say this of. For God so loved the world. And that word world is not talking about the expansiveness and the bigness of the world. The way that the the Apostle John uses that word world is to talk about the sinfulness of the world. It's all the human beings in their rebellion against God. God loved you and me in our sinfulness. He loved the world, the people who are in rebellion against him, that he gave freely, mercifully, graciously. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's our good and gracious Father. That is the triune God that we come to know through Scripture who is merciful and gracious and wants to find lost sheep. And when he finds those lost sheep and when he rescues them, he pursues their benefit and their good. That is true of you. That's true of me right now. And we have to make sure we define what we mean by their good. He's not promising a mansion and a boat and a fleet of awesome cars and perfect health all the time. He's not promising a million Instagram followers. That's not what he's promising. God's goodness to Israel was that they would represent him and they would be a holy nation before him. And so what is God's goodness for you? What is his aim for rescuing you? What does he want to do in your life and in my life? We wanted to, to make Israel into a holy nation to represent him, but this is what he wants to do for you and in your life. And we know that for those who love God, all things, that's pretty expansive, all things, everything that happens in your life and in mine, The difficult and the easy work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is that good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that he's working in your life. He's making you and making me look more like Jesus Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There would be all of these little Christ-like followers of him running around representing him in the world. God literally, this verse, these two verses says that God literally structures the universe and everything that happens in it in order to make you more like Jesus if you're his child. Everything that happens is for that purpose. And so that is a God who delivers and who works to make us more like his son, which is our ultimate good. That is a God who can be believed. That is a God who can be trusted with every aspect of our lives. When he speaks, 
We ought to listen and obey. Now, I've spent a lot of time here, and this is why it's going to take us several weeks to get through this, but I've spent so much time unpacking this aspect of God's character because you have to get this. You have to start here before you can understand why God is giving Israel these particular words. It's not just a list of commandments that he's like, listen, it'd be really nice if you could obey these things. And if you don't, I'm going to come down hard on you. This is not what he's doing here. He's doing this for their benefit and for their good because he has delivered them to make them a holy people. And God's words give life in this way. They point Israel to the character of God. And all of these principles or words are rooted in grace. And when grace is the foundation of this covenant relationship, which is true of Israel, just like it's true of us, when grace is the foundation, then it makes absolute sense for God to call his people to absolute loyalty. And that's the second way that God's law gives life. By teaching us to love God exclusively. By teaching us to love God exclusively. And we'll start in verse 3 this morning and we will continue next week with the rest of this one. There are four words under this heading. I'm sure you have heard before that the Ten Commandments come in two parts. The first four deal with humanity's, Israel's relationship to God, and the second six deal with is Israel's relationship with others. And that's true. And so these, there's four under this first heading here, and we're only going to get to verse 3, the first one. Now this first command, word of revelation that God gives to Israel, this sets the stage for everything else. Everything flows off of verse 3 when it comes to these words or commands. And it's first and it's foundational, and so you and I need to make sure we understand what we're getting at when God gives Israel this word. We have to understand what God is prohibiting here. Look at verse 3. You shall, in the ESV, have no other gods before me. Now, there are a couple of ways that people generally understand what is being communicated and what God is prohibiting and what he is requiring here. It's quite easy to read this as a statement of priority. Before, in the sense of priority, everything kind of hinges on that word before, I'll just say. It's easy to read this and think that what God is saying is, I don't want you to place any other gods in front of me in importance. I am to be the main thing in your life. Devotion to me must take top priority for the nation of Israel. That's one way to read this. There's another way to read this that says that what God is communicating is that there are no other gods. This is a statement of monotheism, which, as we'll see, would have been quite unique in this time and in the cultures surrounding Israel, to only believe that there is one God. No other gods exist. Don't have any other gods besides me would be that way of understanding this. Now, both of those are fine readings of this, but both of them, I think, don't take into account exactly what is being communicated by this word before. 
We're going to get a little bit technical here as we talk about this because I think this will open up to you what God is saying and communicating about his character. So when you see this phrase before me, I don't want you to think in terms of priority, like there's a a line of people waiting for something and God has to be first in line. And I don't want you to think of this as a simple statement of not having any other gods. This is monotheism defined. I want you to think of this in terms of presence or space. And so what God is communicating here is that Israel must not think of there being any other gods in the space around God in his presence. And you're sitting there going, okay, what does that mean? That's weird. Why would he say that to them? And why would this form the foundation of the rest of the words or the commandments here? Well, in the ancient world, every single culture was polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. They believed in them and worshiped them. And the way that they pictured the gods ruling the world was that they pictured them in a pantheon or an assembly of gods. And so, think of this like a boardroom. There might be a a CEO in this boardroom. There might be a lead god in this boardroom. But there's a whole bunch of people at the table. Or think of this like a king in his throne room. And yeah, there's a king, but he has advisors. And he has family members. And they all have input on the decisions that are going to be made. They thought of it this way because they believed in many gods, and so all the gods worked together, and they all had different responsibilities. There was a god of cows, and there was a god of fertility, and a god of rain, and they all sort of took care of their area of the earth and of humankind. And of course, Israel, even at this point, would have been very used to, it would have been very natural for them to picture divinity working this way. I mean, Egypt certainly operated like this, and Israel would head into Canaan, and they would conquer Canaan, but there would still be cultures around them who obviously believed in a multitude of gods and saw those gods as fulfilling different functions in the world. And so what God is doing here with this first word is he's shaping the way Israel is to think about him and the way he relates to any other spiritual being. Whether those spiritual beings exist in the minds of the worshiper or or whether they exist in reality or not. And so what God is telling Israel here is this. He's saying, you must not think that there are any gods in my presence. I don't operate in an assembly. I don't operate in a pantheon. I don't distribute responsibilities to other gods. I don't consult with anyone. There is no one in my presence. I don't ask anyone else what to do or when to do it or how to do it. I operate alone. There's no other gods before me. And you shouldn't think that there are any other gods before me. One set of authors put it like this. The first commandment declared simply and unequivocally that Yahweh's authority was absolute. Divine power was not distributed among other deities or limited by the will of the assembly. If Yahweh does not share power, authority, or jurisdiction with them, they are not gods in any meaningful sense of the word. Now, we've seen this play itself out 
in dramatic fashion in the book of Exodus, haven't we? I mean, the whole purpose for 10 plagues was that God would over and over again humiliate the gods of Egypt, that he would show them as lacking any power at all. They don't have any say in how nature is ordered and how the universe works. They hold no seat at his table. They don't have any influence at all. Now, the implications of this are far-reaching. To think correctly about the divine and about God, the creator God, the covenant God of Israel, this has far-reaching implications for them. God cannot be manipulated like the other gods can. He doesn't share his power. He can't be coerced into anything. He can't be bought. Nobody can bend his will. Beyond that, this is the only God, the one making this covenant with Israel, who can speak into Israel's lives and to their life as a nation. That's going to be developed further in the second commandment, the second word, which we'll get to next week. But they must allow no other gods to have any shaping influence, any influence at all. And so what this means for Israel is they must be completely devoted to God alone. He's the king. He bought them. He rescued them, and he rules them alone. And their lives must be given over to him. They must find their identity and their purpose as a people in him alone. That's it. There are no other gods before him. No other options. God must be the center of their world. And he must remain the most important part of their lives and the defining person in their community as a nation. There are no rivals. And so what this is, the implication of this, is that there is, there's a call here for complete devotion of heart, to love him exclusively, complete devotion of soul. This is the covenant God who made a relationship with them, and they have been bound together with him in a marriage covenant as a family. Now, keep in mind here the purpose for the giving of the ten words. It's to give Israel life. This is not to rain on their parade of worshiping these other gods, to think of these other gods. God is teaching them here how to live well and how to flourish as his representatives. And so this first word, to have no other gods before him, is to put his goodness on full display. He created Israel and created us to find our purpose and our identity in him, to be singly devoted to him. We were made to live this way. This is how we were designed. We were made to not think of any other gods as being in God's presence or to give our affections over to anything else other than him. But let me just remind you that for Israel, this is not simply a matter of intellectual belief. God is not just telling them here, don't think of it this way. He's saying, don't think of it this way, but it's not what you affirm with your words or believe in your heart that is the center of this. Your single-hearted devotion to God shows up in the way that you live and the way that you act. 
And so God is calling Israel here to put on display his exclusive authority. Their obedience to him. Their devotion to him. And that belief that there's no other gods will manifest itself in a whole host of ways every single day. For you and for me, you can't keep this sort of thing hidden. What drives your heart? What, is your, what are you most passionate about? What gets you going? What causes the sun to rise in your world? You can't keep that hidden, and I can't either. It shows up. It pops up every day. And to have any other influences and affections and passions and devotions to anything else above God or in his place will demonstrate itself in the way that I live, the way that you live. It will shape your actions. So, let me ask you this today. Are your actions, is the the pattern and structure of your life displaying your love to God, the God of the universe, because of his gracious deliverance of you from sin and his passionate pursuit of conforming you to the image of Christ? Do your actions put on display that he is the exclusive devotion of your heart? Or, and we'll talk more about this next time with the second word, have you allowed other gods to take priority, to take their place at the table. Yeah, God's still there, but it's more of a pantheon. It's more of an assembly where everybody sort of gets their word and has their influence and their say, and this controls this part of my life, and this God or this passion controls this part. How's it work for you? Yahweh God sits on the throne of the universe alone. And he made you and he made me to worship him and love him exclusively. It's the highest good for ourselves. And this is a word of life to every human being, to Israel and to us as well. This is the highest good that we can have in our lives, to find our true satisfaction and our true purpose and our true passion and desire in him. I pray that that's true of you. I want it to be true of me as well. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these words that reveal your character to us. Help us as we study this important passage over the next couple of weeks. Show us what it looks like for Israel to live well and then help us to make careful and considered application to our own lives. Help us to learn much about who you are and then how we should live in response to that. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us life. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.